Welcome to Language Made Difficult, an inappropriate part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted on a 22 MHz 386 PC running Windows 3.11, located on the Swedish-Finnish border. Joining me today are Keith Slater. Hey, great to be with you guys. And Bill Spruill. Hey. And also joining us yet again on the program is Sherry Wells Jensen. Welcome back, Sherry. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. You really are a glutton for punishment, aren't you? <laughs> Say, yes, indeed. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. As usual, I have three language-related items. Two of them are true and one is false. I know David's not with us anymore, but just a reminder, only one of them is false. <laughs> you guys have to figure out which, which is which. Which one? Which one? <laughs> you guys have to figure out which is which. And after you make your guesses, we will discuss. Our theme for today is who has how many of what? Item number one. The Australian language Daman, a ceremonial register of Lardal, has only two pronouns, me and not me. Item number two. The Indonesian language Ko has only one determiner, and it is obligatory for all nouns. And item number three, the Kenyan language Maasai has only two fully grammaticalized prepositions, one to signify accompaniment and a general preposition for all other prepositional needs. All right, who'd like to go first? I'll make a go at it, I guess. The idea of the Australian language having only two pronouns is kind of believable because you said it was a ceremonial register. And depending on what kind of ceremonial context it's used in, I could see that working. So I'm not going to automatically rule that out. The idea that the Indonesian language Ko has only one determiner and it's obligatory, I also cannot rule out because it's linguists saying this. And there's a bunch of linguists who will look at languages that have no determiners and say that every noun phrase has one and you can't hear it. <laughs> So, you know, if somebody's really into the DP hypothesis, etc., then, yeah, it only has one determiner, it's obligatory, it's silent. <laughs> Number three, the idea that Maasai has only two fully grammaticalized prepositions, there's a giveaway right there that it could be true, which is this fully grammaticalized, because anybody that's got counter evidence, you can just say, hey, but it's not fully grammaticalized. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that makes me nervous about it, though, is the idea that they've got one to signify accompaniment and then a general preposition for everything else. And so even though I get this nagging suspicion I'm going to be wrong on this because they all three sound plausible, I'm going to pick this one as being the false one because I just wouldn't pick accompaniment as being the odd one out. That sounds a little strange. Okay. Keith? Sherry, do you want to go next, or would you like to hear me so you can disagree? I can go next, then you can disagree with me. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. All right. Number one, I think, is true, because the ceremonial language, it it can do what it wants, right? It doesn't have to follow any rules. It gets to do anything it wants to do, so I'm thinking, fine, that's good. Number three, I sort of like because the fun thing about this one is the fully grammaticalized. So I'm going to say that's true. I don't like number two because I don't like the obligatory. Now, if I turn out to be wrong, then I'm going to say that we have different interpretations of the word obligatory and I'm going to insist on my point anyway. So I'm thinking that number two is the wrong one, unless you've defined obligatory incorrectly. And then I get the point anyway. (laughs) Your authority voice is still not working. Keith? <laughs> well, I was going to take number two because from an analytical point of view, 
The only determiner being obligatory for all nouns means that it's in fact not a determiner. It's a noun class marker. But since Sherry took that one, I think I'll disagree and say I'll agree with Bill there that that's probably been claimed to be true by some linguist. The, the third one, Maasai, has only two fully grammaticalized prepositions. That's a reasonable division of labor for prepositions. I mean, sometimes pigeons have just one preposition, you know, so you could have two. Now, I'm not saying that Maasai is a pigeon, but this could be true. So uh, sure, we'll say that's true. So then I think maybe number one must be wrong. Of course, by choosing that, I make it certain that Trey earns a point. But so be it. The uh, ceremonial register of Lardil that has only two pronouns, me and not me, I've got to say that's not true because although it is true that ceremonial registers don't have to handle actual language situations, so they, they don't have to follow any rules like Sherry had said, but I think the real distinction that a ceremonial register needs to make is between us and them or us and everybody else because the ceremony is almost certainly going to involve the community, not the individual. So I'm going to say that number one is false because the distinction is not me and not me. Okay. Let's see. Since everybody picked a different one, we will do them in order. Mm. So, number one, the ceremonial language with just two pronouns, me and not me, that is in fact true. Yay! No, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Your authority voice isn't working either. All right. Number two, (laughs) the language with only one determiner that is obligatory for all nouns is in fact false. I made that one up. Yay! For the first time in recorded history, I got one right. So excited. Ooh, you're tied for the lead, too. (laughs) Did you make up the language? No, it's a real language. Okay. I always look up real languages. I randomly choose a language. That's why it's lies and not fictions, right? Exactly. (laughs) You should all have known that the last one was true because with the two fully grammaticalized prepositions, because if I were to make that up, there would be a general preposition and the only specific preposition would be modulo. (laughs) Clearly. Based on previous episodes of this show. Yep, exactly. (laughs) That means that the score now is one all. Yep, all tied up. Awesome. Well, I have to compliment you on creating a puzzle there that was perfect for the situation so that we're now all equal. I'd just like to point out, I feel like I'm channeling David a little bit here. I'm tied for first place, and Keith, you're tied for last. (laughs) (laughs) That's enough of uh, Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. And we'll be back with some language news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. They don't know any better. And we're back. Well, it's finally been proven. Linguists' grammaticality judgments differ from those of non-linguists. In a recent paper published in the Linguistic Review, Eva Dabrowska answers the question, what do linguists think is grammatical that non-linguists think it is not? So Dabrowska shows that linguists' judgments are, well, um, how do we say it, different. First, we need some background. Bill, for our non-linguist listeners, could you just give us a brief definition of grammaticality judgments? Grammaticality judgments are basically kind of yes-no questions where the analyst considers a sentence, decides whether it supports the theory or not, and then based on that says whether the sentence is grammatical. (laughs) Okay, I think that's a good working definition anyway. We'll go with that for now. So the question for all of us to consider is, what's up? Is this news that linguists evaluate sentences differently from non-linguists, or didn't we already know this all along? Does anybody have an opinion? 
Mm. I think grad students know this because they suffer mm. from that, the syntax syndrome where you sit in syntax class and you read all these ungrammatical sentences over and over and then you make jokes about them with your friends. And then all of a sudden you realize you want to say things like, that's my favorite, your shirt. And you're like, that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> Maybe that's not reasonable. We say that all the time. <laughs> and so you have the intonation. It depends on which theory you're reading at the time. <laughs> but, but then when you become a professional linguist, if, if you're seeking tenure, your grammaticality judgments have to fit more with Bill's definition of whether or not they support your theory. So I think it's something that grad students know, but maybe professional linguists repress. Yeah, I guess it's testimony time. I had this experience, which was formative or life-changing or something, back in about 1988 or 9, probably 88. Tim Pulyu and another Michigan State student, his name was Dave, but I won't tell you the rest because I don't want to ruin his career. Anyway, the, the three of us were sitting around in our uh, dorm room and somebody came across this generalized phrase structure grammar introduction, which at the time was fairly new. That's the Gazdar, Klein, Pullum, and Sag, right? And that book was fairly new at the time. And we thought, oh, let's this some of these grammaticality judgments struck us as a little weird. So we said, let's play a game. So one of us read the sentences, the example sentences out of the book, and the other two tried to guess whether they were grammatical or not, according to the <laughs> authors of the book. And I think we were right about 50% of the time, you know, so we it was, it was <laughs> you know, and then that's just chance, right? Because there's only two possible answers. But the amazing thing was that three or four years later, I picked up the same book on my own and glanced through the examples. And goodness, I found that I agreed with the authors in the vast majority of the, of the sentences. <laughs> and the funny thing, the thing that I've thought about since then is that in the intervening years, I was not mostly undergoing professional linguistic training. I was mostly teaching English in type A. And that means that I was not being exposed to professional linguists' evaluations of the grammaticality of these sentences that were necessary for the theory. Instead, I was being exposed to English spoken by non-native speakers. So that's exactly, so that's exactly if, what did it to you, right? I so wonder if we, if we actually become socialized into making the right grammaticality judgments by the right in the terms of the theory by influence of defective grammar. I think that's exactly what did it to you because after I grade a whole set of L2 essays, I walk around for days saying things like, I am, can have supper now because of it. I want to eat now, please. <laughs> and, and after a while, that all just sounds... <laughs> It all sounds perfectly as good to me after a while. <laughs> and so then when I want to grade the good. next set, I have to ask people. I have to say, you know, is this can be correct grammar? And we all talk like lolcats, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I need some authority then because I don't I don't know anymore. So before I thought I knew when I thought mm. I'll be an English teacher. I, but then after I get back into it for a while, I think, no, 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 I, I don't know. I don't know. I have no internal grammar whatsoever. There's a couple of distinctions that might be useful here. and. Discussion of this, by the way, there's the Dombrowska article, and then there's also an article by S Sprouse and someone else that is kind of arguing against that position. Some of this came up in a discussion on Reddit lately, etc. But you've got things like the equivalent of false positives and false negatives in diagnosis. And so, assuming that you can say sentences are grammatical or not, you could imagine that a sentence that really is, quote, grammatical, unquote, you could hand it to a particular reader who would look at it and say, no, that's ungrammatical. And that would be a false negative in this framework, right? And you could have a sentence that really is grammatical, and you could hand it to a reader who says, no, that's not grammatical, and then that's your false negative. 
or maybe I reverse those. But it, yeah. yeah, you've got a good sentence that's perceived as bad versus a bad sentence that's perceived as good. One of the effects of being exposed to a lot of non-native speaker English is more sentences seem good to you. Right. So if you're looking at the phrase structure grammar in your example, if what happened was a bunch of sentences that you thought should be starred now sound fine to you, that can just be like envelope expansion. And it might turn out that a bunch of other sentences that Gazdar and Pullum would say are starred also don't have stars to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, a kind of countervening thing, I have a bunch of students, because I have not done a formal study, I should, but this is kind of like show people things, have them make judgments count in large groups, kind of pilot study. If you show them a sentence that has a, uh, I think the official term is a fronted adverb of low frequency, like seldom had we seen that, right? So you have a word like never or seldom up front, you get the kind of auxiliary kind coming right after it like you would normally get with a WH question. Okay. A bunch of my students have no problem whatsoever saying that's obviously ungrammatical. Mm. All right. It's just wrong. That's just a wrong construction. And that's kind of the opposite effect. My hunch on that, and this is something I need to check, that's the kind of construction you tend to find in formal prose. People don't say it in speech much. (laughs) The students for whom it's fine are the students who have seen it in print a bunch, right? Mm-hmm. The Sprouse article was looking at grammaticality judgments made in textbooks, and then they used a Mechanical Turk on Amazon to have a bunch of other people look at these and see if they agreed with the grammaticality judgments. There was like a 98% agreement, right? Hmm. So that's good. I mean, that's a very high agreement rate. But what I'm kind of wanting to know is that if you change the context so that it's a group of people that don't read much and you're slipping these into conversation, what kind of judgments do you get? And that's incredibly difficult because it's hard for me to figure out a research paradigm that doesn't involve people looking at a screen and voting. Ooh, rarely right. have I heard such a good question. It, it is a really good research question. You had, I think <laughs> it, you could do some kind of context manipulation, some kind of formality manipulation, right? Because these students, I'm guessing the more you go on in academia, the more you are thrust into these overly formal kind of speaking engagements. And so maybe a way to do that with other students who are not yet in that place is to have them sit before the screen and have the great and powerful wizard come down and speak to them in their little fantasy role-playing thing. And so I think something that's ungrammatical for me might not be ungrammatical for the great and powerful wizard to say. Yeah, I was thinking there would be a sociological component there in that you're much less likely to think something's ungrammatical if your professor says it and clearly doesn't think it's ungrammatical. I have some other comments, though, on some of the stuff that you guys were talking about. I want to jump in here. Mm. First of all, Bill, you shouldn't have said that false positives, as in diagnoses, you should use computational linguistics. We use false positives and false negatives, too. So don't confuse people with all your medical terminology. The other thing is that Mechanical Turk... Uh, 
So all that says is that the grammaticality judgments in textbooks have a 98% overlap with line noise. Mechanical Turk <laughs> stuff. <laughs> they get paid on how fast they push the button, so I'm not sure I would believe anything. <laughs> the, the problem I had with the use of Mechanical Turk, and, and Sprouse, uh, Sprouse and uh, the co-author, I, I should remember the co-author's name. I'm going to look. Sprouse and Almeida, and my apologies to Almeida for leaving the name out. I'm pretending other people will actually listen to the podcast, so... <laughs> <laughs> the Sprouse and Almeida article, they do address limitations with Mechanical Turk, but the problem I'm having with Mechanical Turk is almost by definition, people who are participating in this, the people that are making the judgments, are to at least some degree literate people who are sitting there staring at a screen, right? Since I'm going into this with the suspicion that a lot of what we call grammaticality is created by the statistical patterns in text that has been through gatekeeping. Right. The tradition of editing that has grown up over the centuries and what sentences can you put in documents and other ones that you can't, you know, and that sort of thing. Since I have this sort of suspicion that that's what's creating a bunch of the grammaticality judgments and that if we could have people sort of talking unconstrained by this, we would have a much less clear idea of what was grammatical. The people participating in Grammatical Turk are ones that are not going to be outside that. It It's like mailing a are you literate or not questionnaire out and then basing your results on who mails it back. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, people who are going to do Mechanical Turk stuff are probably literate. They're definitely computer literate to be able to do it. On the other hand, they don't have anything else useful to do with their time other than sit around and judge sentences for a nickel apiece. So, mm. well, humanities majors, they've read a lot. <laughs> I wanted to get back to something that Sherry said that really struck a chord with me. I I believe it was Anderson's Amorphous Morphology book that actually put this idea in my head that I really like, which is that the constraints of universal grammar aren't really constraints on language, but they're constraints on language change. And that, you know, there's only so many ways to misinterpret or reinterpret something that as, as a language is being transmitted from one generation to the next. And those kinds of things limit the kinds of things that can happen in language. And so one of my favorite things is language games, you know, like Pig Latin and stuff, where you can have really weird rules and you can just learn them and become fluent in them. And I think there's something similar going on here for linguists, because our general philosophical approach of a lack of prescriptivism and not judging people, particularly people who aren't native speakers of English, basically our osmosis barriers are much lower. And so we're more likely to be infected by these other things and weird speech patterns that come up from L2 interference and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you end up, like Sherry said, walking around talking like a lolcat. And it seems okay. I think they're actually, she's right. You don't actually have any grammar. <laughs> you were making a joke, but I think there really isn't any universal grammar. I think almost anything other than has like sort of uh, computational limits, like uh, center embedding too many times. Almost anything could be grammatical, mm. as long as you, you don't have that judgment of, oh, that's so wrong, it must stay out. You suppress your grammaticality judgment. If you keep suppressing it, it goes you're away. Right. So, like, if you're doing lots of intake interviews with international students, for example, you come out, you're like, mm. yeah, everything you said seemed perfectly clear to me. And the, then the undergrad sitting next to me is like, no, I really didn't understand a word he said. And I, I'm thinking, no, 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 it was all perfectly. I knew exactly what he meant all the time. There's another piece of that, which is that the linguist part of your brain, so linguistics damages your brain. And so you're constantly doing analysis of everything you say and everyone around you says. And that if someone has, like, weird patterns, you pick up on the pattern. And that's why it's clear to you and not clear to the 
to the undergraduate sitting next to you is you're like, oh, and especially if you know anything about their first language, trying to figure out why they say things weird and working harder to understand them. And then again, that osmotic barrier is just getting more and more porous and stuff keeps coming in, breaking down your grammar. Listening with my Chinese filter on, therefore everything that person says makes really good sense to me. Right. And at the same time, you don't realize it, but it's getting in there and it's digesting your grammar, breaking it down. On the other hand, though, I do have to say that some of the sentences that are fairly short, so they're not likely to overload your memory capacity, some of the types of violations that are presented in linguistics textbooks to illustrate this breaks this rule and that's why it's ungrammatical. There are certain of those that are actually extremely difficult to even remember well enough to write on the board. <laughs> so now I'm going to ask you to difficultly remember one and give us an example. Yeah, and see, I can't do it, but it's <laughs> they're typically the ones where you're um, it, it's certain of Ross's island constraints. They're actually difficult to keep in your head to get on the board. Mm. So I got some examples from the article here. What did Claire make the claim that she read in a book? I tried that one on my daughter, whose name happens to be Claire, and she said, what's wrong with that? Okay. Was that no, ungrammatical I'm... or not? That's ungrammatical. According no, to the authors. <laughs> well, that one's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I got another one that looks bad. It sounds good. It sounds good. All right. Her husband not claimed they asked where we were going. No, that's bad. That's obviously bad. Unless you stress it like not claimed. Like not claimed is a compound. Oh, that could make it okay to say it that way. Her husband not claimed they asked where we were going. Yeah, I not no. claimed that. No, no, no. It's not good. Sorry. Can't you say it? No, in the right context, you could start making the not as a, a productive prefix temporarily. No, yeah. no, you couldn't. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. <laughs> <laughs> you totally could. You think yeah. you not could, but you could. <laughs> Perfect. I feel bad being in this sort of position of it's the equivalent of saying there are words in this language that cannot be translated into English and then somebody says well what words and it's like what do they mean and then you say I can't tell you because they can't be translated you know but as someone who doesn't want to think that there are constraints other than those imposed by working memory storage and that kind of thing and the inertia caused by ingrained patterns competing with other ones. Nevertheless, I have had this experience of looking at something in the textbook, turning around to write it on the board, and even past my usual absent-mindedness, which involves, you know, somebody threw a frisbee across the window and I can't remember anything. Even separate from that, I'm turning around stuff on the board and it won't stay in my head well enough for me to write it down. It's just that bad, right? So that type of phenomenon feels like support for the idea of these more formal constraints that are harder to explain mm. by other means. I've had that same experience. And of course, I can't come up with a good example either. <laughs> learning another language that it, so it is in fact grammatical to someone <laughs> because it's German and then I'm like sitting there and I'm going yeah. by the time I get to the end of the sentence I'm like yeah I just don't you know I like calc the sentence into English I'm like no I still can't remember it from the time I get to the end I can't yeah that's, that's <laughs> the test for this kind of thing I think is because you do have the issue of what I'll just call brain burn in right which is what we talk about when we talk you know contrastive analysis that kind of thing you're so used to one pattern that a pattern that is similar enough to it in some respects, but different enough in others just runs into it and crashes. And one of them has a lot more inertia than the other one does, or whatever you want to call it, so it wins. Obviously, this is yet another situation where infants need to be raised 
being exposed to sentence sets that include these, mm-hmm. right? Mm. To see if they can actually, I mean, there could not possibly be any human subjects research problems with that. <laughs> so many forbidden experiments, so little time. <laughs> right, you know? And so the sort of less powerful version is exactly what Sherry mentioned, which is we just keep slipping people these sentences in utterly authoritative sounding texts. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, in fact, suspect that that's part of what Shakespeare is, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, if we keep saying sentences where Keith is going to not agree, <laughs> then eventually he won't, he will not have that problem. Uh, dang, they still, they're grammatical in English too. Darn it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I want to disagree. Uh, <laughs> Not agree? This Dabrowska article, she tried to hide what disproved the theory she was trying to prove. Uh, she tried to hide it by putting pages and pages of charts and graphs and things that said ANOVA and other math envy kind of stuff that uh, appeared to be scientific. But I skipped over all that and got to the interesting thing, which was that turned out in testing professional linguists, she discovered that there was no difference, I mean, really no difference between generativists and people who called themselves cognitive functional linguists in terms of how they rated the grammaticality of these sentences. So that shows that it's not exposure to the linguistic literature, the formal linguistic literature that causes you to accept these weird sentences. I mean, weird to the native speaker, to the non-linguist, because the functionalists aren't allowed to read that stuff anyway, right? So they weren't exposed to that. Something we talked about last time, you know, with translation, the more time you spend looking at the details of the text, the worse you get at translating it. And I think that must be what goes on just for any professional linguist. The more time you spend thinking about language, the worse you are at evaluating. Well, maybe your control group ought to be other academics then, because maybe it's just exposure Mm. to academia that wrecks your mind. That could be. That could be. (laughs) If we compared to, say, literature professors, what would we expect? Well, Well, okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) You two both have an opinion. (laughs) You would fight on that one, Bill. I'll just hide over here. I'll not say it. If you have spent any length of time reading... Not the French version. I haven't read the French version. I've read, you know, English translations of this. But you read Derrida for any length of time. It's all grammatical. (laughs) Well, I will grant you that it's all equally grammatical. You know, you start going, you could put a chili recipe in the middle of it. (laughs) I'm sorry, the chili recipe won't work because it's useful. So maybe it correlates with the length of the academic articles that you're expected to produce for tenure. So that would mean, say, that math people don't have this problem because their articles are short. But literature people should have this problem because, boy, their articles, like 50, 60 pages is nothing. Hmm. (laughs) And the more prose you're forced to generate, the more grammar shrink you suffer from. Hmm. Grammar shrink. I like that term. With math papers, though, there's actually the same number of words in them. They're just encoded differently. <laughs> no, there's a language. Mm. But there's a, an encoding system. I remember this experience in my math classes in undergrad that we had a terrible professor who would always block the board and he would speak and he would be writing something on the board and there would be no words when he was finished. As he was speaking, I would be writing in my notes and his series of symbols and my series of symbols would be identical and it would be mm. about 20 characters that represented about 30 words. So I think actually... You might need another data point there before you can draw that straight line. Yeah, it's almost like technical specification language. You can turn any of the equations into a set of words, and mathematicians all use the same words for those, so you end up with 100% translation. Right. And therein lies the difference between math and linguistics. (laughs) Okay, well, I think maybe we've beaten this one to death. 
let's just go back to thinking whatever we feel like calling grammatical is grammatical and live our lives happily. Sounds like a plan. Amen. And now let's have another word from our lucrative sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Semeticus Press, publishing great linguistics research since before the Great Vowel Shift. Welcome back to the Speculative Grammarian Podcast. It's time once again for Prescriptivist Confessions, that period of the show where we complain about things that, as linguists, we know are stupid and pointless to complain about, but want to complain about anyway. <laughs> oh, and there's guilt involved. <laughs> lots and lots of guilt. The thing that's particularly bothering me today is the literary critic use of the word recuperate, which in the English spoken by most people means to get better, like I was sick last week and I'm going to recuperate. There are a number of older uses that involve things like to recuperate a loss, and so the noun phrase that goes after it represents something bad. Okay, so you recuperate a loss, you recuperate an injury. It really is kind of recover from. In literary criticism, one can recuperate texts and recuperate positions. At this point, I would normally then explain to you what critics mean when they say that, but I haven't really figured out what they mean when they say that, and they're not about <laughs> to tell me. So I have decided to take an easier path on that one and decide just that they shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> just stick with that. Keep it simple, right? Well, you don't even have to explain it to me. Just don't do it. <laughs> it's like you don't have to explain why there's an enraged aardvark in the middle of the kitchen. Just don't put one there. <laughs> and then the idea is they would recuperate the aardvark? I don't know. I think exteriority would be involved somehow. <laughs> I think you need to be careful here because this may be a sort of a trap. So if you go around complaining about this, then the lit crit people are going to know, you know, danger, danger. Here's somebody with an analytical mind who's actually paying attention, trying to understand and not just be overwhelmed by the meaning of the meaning of the meaningfulness of it all. <laughs> and they're going to come after you. They're going to recuperate you, Bill. <laughs> They're very analytical. That's not the problem. The problem is more the apparent consensus that if you phrase things in a way that enables the public to recognize the value of what you're saying, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I want to talk them out of that position somehow, but every time I try... I try to make sense. <laughs> I don't think you're in any real danger, but I think they'll just sort of feel sorry for you because you they obviously do. don't get it. They do. It's hard to tell based on what they say. <laughs> I have an example that bothers me where it's pretty clear what people mean, but it still really gets me. In business contexts in particular, though I'm sure it happens elsewhere, but that's where I hear it. Sometimes people will say, instead of saying they want to flesh out the details, they will say they want to flush out the details. And it drives me crazy because <laughs> the literal meaning, I mean, as an idiom is perfectly understandable, of course, but the literal meaning is sort of exactly the opposite, right? You have these skeletal details and you want to, you know, flesh them out and then add more detail as opposed to mm. taking this, <laughs> these weak details and flushing them <laughs> down the Washing toilet away. and they're gone. Yes. <laughs> now, now, see, I had a different interpretation of that, which is they start out doing what business people always do, which is hiding the details. 
And then you have to flush them out from cover, right? <laughs> it's like you get them to break out into the open where you can find them. Oh, it makes my perfect goodness. sense. That actually makes that's what the reanalysis is based on. Right. I hang out with a bunch of liberal linguists, academically inclined, non-hunting types. I yeah. don't think any <laughs> yeah. of us ever thought of it as being flushing out your, your prey. Oh, no. You look at like a business presentation, there could be 15 or 20 details hiding behind that excellence over there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you particularly f like a big stand of functionalities? There could be a whole <laughs> bunch of details in there and you just flush them out. <laughs> Oh, no, I have to come up with something new then. Okay, well, you can't be complaining about that one anymore. Hey, I've got <laughs> one that I think sort of a little bit similar, and maybe I don't know if any of you folks are sports fans. I know I know one of you is not, but there's something that I keep running into in sports journalism, which I can't quite interpret. I think it's a flip in it's a positive negative flip. So I often run into the description of a team which is not performing well offensively, say. It'll say Team X needs to get their offense untracked. To me, that sounds backwards. What they need is to get their offense on track. I think on track is the earlier form, and then people took it to mean, well, you're on the track. You know, you're stuck in a rut. You I was going to say you're stuck in a rut. out of a rut, right? We can recuperate this. And so the track is a rut. But I think actually what originally it meant was uh, get their offense back on the track they intended, right? Right. I have a solution for that one because as you were saying that, I kept repeating it over and over to myself, thinking, do I know what this means? Do I know what this means? And now I've said it enough times that I totally get it and it makes perfect sense. <laughs> we already I just know. need to say it more. Oh. You have no barriers to your grammar. You've just digested another bit of it. <laughs> That's right. Another little brick has fallen. I guess I have no barriers to my lexicon either because now that makes really good sense. Get that untracked. Come on, do it. Untrack, untrack, untrack it. Untrack it. Untrack. Then we're going to have the more formal version, distrack. <laughs> distrack. Oh, no. Distract and then it. we can say, well, not distract it if it works the other way, right? Yeah. Got to not distract it. <laughs> I don't think anybody else got that but me. I don't want to say mine because I think mine is too mean. <laughs> I have a lot of guilt with mine because this sort of has to do with my children and my students. And I should probably be nice to both those groups of people, but this makes me nuts. It's that the difference between can and can't, which should be really clear because there's a nice t there that they smash down into can and can't. And then they take that same glottal stop that they've got as a negation marker and they move it to didn't to mean didn't. And then, and then they're all the way over to things that are important. And the weird, where the guilt comes in is whenever one of my children says to me, it's really important. I think it can't possibly be because <laughs> <laughs> it's got that negative marker. <laughs> It, my thing is just mean. So I, it well, is mean. I feel hurt because I have that. <laughs> I have that. And when I'm trying to speak, particularly to non-native speakers, they don't understand when I say the negative can't because it sounds just like can. The difference there is the length of the N, actually. Um, yeah. But I have trouble because I, I can't. There, I'll put the T in. I can't Thank make you. the Thank distinction you. clear. See? See, I can't make better? the distinction clear in normal speech. No, I don't but feel don't better. You, I no, feel, feel assaulted. Better. You feel better because you got to put the big powerful T at the end of your can't. <laughs> and it's much more powerful. <laughs> I have trouble hearing the positive-negative distinction with it because... No one where I'm living now does the vowel difference that's supposed to be there. Everybody knows the positive is can, the negative is can't. <laughs> All right? That's totally clear. But 
I do want to argue a bit because I don't think that what happened was... I have no proof of this, of course, but I'm just going to sound authoritative. <laughs> I don't think it spread from the negative into words like important. I think it spread from words like important into the, the negative. The negatives always had, or at least it's had for a long time, the co-articulated glottal stop with the T, which could, in fact, just end up being the only marker of the T that's there. But at least younger people where I'm living, just about any T that's got a nasal in front of it, I think probably stress environment has an effect on this. But it's not just important, it's sentence. Yeah, kitten, sentence. I'm so glad I don't hear on young people. Kitten doesn't have an N in front of it. Well, it's got the N behind, though. It's the, it's the kitten N afterwards. The yeah. But notice what's going on. Once you get the glottal stop spreading in a certain environment, so it's important and that kind of thing. Of course, that doesn't have a nasal either. I'm just going to contradict myself here for a while. It's your classic sound change where it starts off in one environment. But if it gets rid of the conditioning factor, then it could spread anywhere else that has any other part of the conditioning factor, right? can eat your whole language. Right. <laughs> Let's imagine it starts out just after R's, so it's, it's in important, and then it's like important. But how do you know that was a T there anymore? You don't. You don't. No, you so, don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously phrasing this badly, but it sets up the conditions for its own spread, and then it can generalize. Uh, no, that doesn't generalize. So, it becomes phonemic, and well, then it right, contrasts. Right. So then it but doesn't generalize, because it becomes a new phoneme. That's all we need in English, is a few more phonemes. <laughs> oh, let's have clicks. <laughs> Bill, your authoritative voice is very good. I was believing everything you said, even the things that contradicted each other. <laughs> yeah. Up until you use positive anymore, and then I had a small stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a negative before that? Not enough of one. Not <laughs> it, was a, it was a silent negative, Bill. You have to remember just the overt it's, what. It was obligatory silent negative. Maybe it got eaten by a glottal stop. I don't know what happened to it, but I didn't hear one, and it hurt. If I had a vowel initial word in there, the phonetic glottal stop before the vowel was actually deleted and replaced by a negative glottal stop allomorph. Nice. Yeah, there we go. I'm glad you gave us the analysis. Right. So, for example, there's the word apple, and then there's the word apple. <laughs> Which is the negative? <laughs> well, obviously the second one. It had the negative glottal stop. Oh, what's the negative of that? Does that well, mean the, what, No, the fright, one that frightens me is what's the negative of kitten? What is that kitten thing? It's the negative glottal stop, but the negative glottal stop doesn't get realized before stop consonants when they're word initial. So it's the null glottal stop at the beginning of kitten. Oh. I think I just got dumber. <laughs> <laughs> Your grammar is just shrinking, Trey. It hurts a little bit at first, but later it'll just happen to you and you won't even mind. You'll sort of enjoy the numbing tingle. It'll be okay. Okay. <laughs> it's all non-Euclidean feature geometry. <laughs> just let go. Just let go. Let the pointy finger guide you. <laughs> well, I think the pointy finger is guiding us to the end of our podcast. It sounds like it. So I'm going to call it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and join us again next time. My headset's on backwards. Hold on. <laughs> well, that just means the channels will come out left and right reversed. Yeah. It might mean that we get your F not fundamental frequency inverted or something. Right. Which would be interesting. All, all of the technical things that I come up with, either Trey does them or they don't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding.
And it's not like there's much topic continuity either. So it was, oh gosh, I have to ad lib this. Say that again. Who has how many of what? Six. I've got 14. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. Go ahead. The main question there was who. So six is probably not. Who? Me. Me. (laughs) Unless you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Start over. Start over. The Australian. The Australian. The Australian language. uh, Does anybody know how to actually pronounce these things? What do linguists think is grammatical that non-linguists think it is not? Nebraska shows. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That was awesome. I hit rant crash. And now you have to say, and now a word from our sponsor. Oh, it frightens me. Especially if we can do a retake. I mean, I'll I'll just kind of wing it. <laughs> I like retakes. I'm just trying to think what a podcast would be. <laughs> the bottle might really, if it's negated, might mean cup of tea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I am better. I make fun of her language. She suffers. <laughs> yeah, but she's a linguist's child, so that's how that goes. Can I please have some food, Mom? Seriously, Mom, I need food. Go away. I love you. I love you. Now <laughs> go away. 